This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. The week began with a throne speech at Queen's Park, signaling the priorities for the governing Ford PCs in the coming months ahead of next June's provincial election. The future of long-term care figured prominently in the speech, along with an acknowledgement that elderly Ontario residents were not properly protected in the early months of the pandemic. There were no new promises, only a repeat of earlier commitments to build 30,000 new and redeveloped nursing home beds and to hire more personal support workers. The throne speech also came after the long overdue announcement on the Friday before National Seniors Day of a mandatory vaccine policy for long-term care staff. Joining Libby to react to what essentially was a reset for the Ford Tories, our Monday Zoomer squad, Peter Mugrich, a senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. I thought it was a clever uh, speech in that they did mention a few specifics that will enable them to um, uh, claim to have performed, I'm thinking ahead to next June in the election. They say by April 2022, they will have added 16,200 more personal support workers to the healthcare system. That's a, a number that uh, can be measured and see whether they hit it or not. And if they do, I imagine they're going to trumpet that loud and clear. They also promise to bring in uh, legislation I'm quoting here, introduce legislation to protect residents through better accountability, enforcement, and transparency. The days when bad actors could get away with anything less than quality care for our most vulnerable will be over. And uh, CARP has demanded um, a return to um, unannounced inspections and fines and so forth. So um, I think that they're very aware of what they need to do and say uh, in the next election. Um, and I thought in that sense, this was, uh, uh, I'm not saying breathtakingly new, but I think it was tactically very uh, shrewd. Bill, what's your take? Well, I, I agree with uh, David that it's interesting that they finally put some uh, goals that are, that are less than years ahead uh, in, the, in, in the speech. Uh, you know, most of the, as you said, most of the, uh, uh, promises in it are old promises just being, uh, uh, just being uh, renewed. Uh, I was interested though that they very specifically admitted they did not serve seniors well and, and the pledge to, uh, to change that. The first thing though that, that hit me was, uh, uh, the quote that says that the advice of the chief medical officer of health, uh, they'll seek to minimize disruptions to business and and families. The ultimate goal is to avoid future lockdowns. I certainly would have thought the ultimate goal would have been to keep our uh, loved ones safe and to uh, control uh, COVID, to put 
uh, that kind of business slant on it so so strongly is disturbing. Mm-hmm. Peter, how about you? Well, you know the it, it's clear that the uh, this is this is the Ford government admitting that um, their their handling of long term care homes during the pandemic was disastrous and. The, um, you know, we don't need to go over all the reports and the military coming in and the deaths and the outbreaks and the, you know, the, the measures that were countermanded and, and, uh, confusing and just a whole litany of problems. And, and here they are admitting that, um, you know, they, they're, re- they're trying to reset the, the issue and say, okay, going forward, this is what we're going to do. Um, you can measure it. Uh, you can see the money involved, and um, this is how we're going to solve it. So, so it, in a sense, they're they're sort of owning up to their their biggest um, failure during the, the pandemic, and I, and and I think it's probably good news. But but whether it's achievable or not, or whether they do achieve it, it, it remains to be seen. The one takeaway line uh, we haven't discussed in the throne speech was Ford promising that. The um, economic and fiscal recovery will be fueled by economic growth and not by painful tax hikes or spending cuts. Now, I'm sure he won't put in any painful tax hikes or spending cuts before the election, but um, this recovery is going it, to—it's it, going to happen at some point. And uh, he's just—he um, just threw that out there as, as an election gambit, I think. Peter Magrich, a senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president at Zoomer Media. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Still with reaction on Monday to the Ford government's throne speech, liberal leader Stephen Del Duca may have had the most colorful line of the morning when he said, it's shocking that we had to wait so long to hear so little from Doug Ford after he had been in hiding for months. But is that a fair assessment? Conservative strategist John McEtishan weighed in, as did Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner, but first, Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. Two or three things that really stand out for me. Number one, the entire throne speech today the word education didn't appear a single time in any of the text or any of what we heard today. That's number one. To me, that's just completely crazy, given how much angst moms and dads and kids and teachers still have about what's happening in Ontario's schools. Uh, number two, nothing about $10 a day licensed child care after we've just come out of a federal campaign where the overwhelming majority of Ontario families voted in favor of that policy and We're one of the few holdouts in Canada. We don't have a deal in place. And number three, given how hard essential workers have have literally kept Ontarians safe and and the province moving during this pandemic, really shocked that there was nothing in today's throne speech that suggests there will be more protection for them. And so those, those are the three things. But beyond all of that, just the fact that it was a lot of empty rhetoric after we waited so long to hear what Doug Ford's plan is for the balance of this fourth wave in our recovery. The other party leaders also had their say responding to the throne speech. And now I'd like to welcome Ontario Green Party leader, Mike Schreiner. Hello, Mike. Hello, Libby. Hope you're having a good day. Oh, what did you miss most in the speech? Well, Libby, I have to say that's one of the most uninspiring throne speeches I think I've ever heard. 
I mean, people are desperate for answers from government about how we're going to get this pandemic behind us. And some of the big issues, like the chronic nurses shortage that we're facing, nothing about how to address it in the throne speech, nothing about supporting small businesses with additional funding support and also support to implement the vaccine certificate. I tell you what, cases are rising in schools and parents and educators and students are saying, what's the government going to do to make sure our kids are safe and our schools stay open? Nothing in the throne speech about it. And then the premier, he said the reason he probed the legislature to have a throne speech was that he needed to respond to the federal election campaign. Well, some of the biggest issues in the federal election, $10 a day child care, not mentioned in the throne speech, the climate crisis that we're facing, we're experiencing every day not mentioned in the throne speech. And housing affordability crisis was one of the top issues in the federal election, not mentioned in the throne speech. So, you know, I think Ontarians are left wondering, well, what is the government's agenda? What was the point of this throne speech? We want to know how we're going to get through the pandemic, and we want to know what the vision is for a post-pandemic Ontario. And we didn't receive any of those answers today. Let's see what the insiders think. I'm joined by John McEtitian, who is a conservative activist, political consultant, and president of the Bradgate Research Group. So uh, everybody seems to be sure that this is uh, kind of a pre-election throne speech. Do you see it that way? Uh, well, that's pretty much stating the obvious when it's eight months before uh, a set calendar election. So yes, of course it is. And, uh, you know, if you had to grade it, did you like what you heard there? Yeah, you know what, it's given our circumstances, it's really hard to uh, think of what could have been done differently, right? From a conservative's perspective, uh, you know, we like balanced budgets, we like paying down debt, we like being uh, responsible and ready for any kind of big economic disaster. And where we are is coming out of a big economic disaster, right? Because while all the focus in the last 18 months may have been on the, the human story and the human tragedy and the, the, you know, behind that with COVID has been this economic sunsumi that's hit our economy, uh, both with people not working, but in business failures. And how do we restart that? So, you know, for, for every business that's gone under so far, I, I would bet there's another five that are on the verge of failing and are hanging on with by their fingernails. And I think uh, uh, this budget and this government is, uh, you know, the right one, not budget, throne speech. Uh, we'll see the budget shortly. All of that is what's needed to grow the economy and save people from a worse situation than we're in. Conservative strategist John McEtitian, Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner, and Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. You're listening to the Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, another apology from Justin Trudeau. But is it one apology too many? We will discuss. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. This week's meeting of Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel was the first since Justin Trudeau decided against attending any events associated with the first National Truth and Reconciliation Day. 
The prime minister apologized privately to indigenous communities for the mistake and then acknowledged his error in judgment publicly on Wednesday. The phrase most heard after the misstep, what was he thinking? Here are Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations, John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village. Instead of being humbled by the fact that he has a minority government and didn't win what he wanted out of the election, you know, he's still operating in a way that is not um, demonstrating that he's learning. And it, it, you know, for all the reasons that we know, it was a, a cause, a, a, an unbelievable error of judgment to take a holiday on the first day of reconciliation that his government pronounced it to be a national holiday or federal national holiday. I mean, I, there's nothing more to say about it. It was just dumb. But, you know, what it does is it sets us back because there was Mark, Mark steps towards a, a, a believable process for reconciliation that the country was buying into. We have an Indigenous uh, lieutenant governor now, and or governor general, rather. You know, we've got it. There's, there's a recognition in, this, in our schools. There's a recognition in the workplace. There's land proclamations that are taking place in businesses. So, you know, we're all collectively recognizing that this is important and that we need to embrace it. And, but now this, but now this has happened and it's a big step back in our progress. And it also begs now the bigger question is, okay, how do we continue moving forward? Because if the prime minister doesn't deem it to be an important enough day to take pause and reflect, but instead turns it into a personal holiday for him and his family, how is there any legitimacy in that day? John, do you think that that is uh, kind of uh, overblowing it? I mean, Trudeau, um, you know, obviously was acting like entitled or whatever it was. But that was, uh, does that cast a shadow on the whole thing? Uh, no, I don't think it's overblowing it. But there's nothing about what he did that was right or appropriate. But you would think that if somebody who led the charge that he would be, you know, the one person who would spend the full day uh, attending events and, and doing, you know, the things that a prime minister ought to be doing. The unfortunate thing is, is that it took all the press, it took all the attention away from what it should have been. Uh, and then, you know, there was always, there's these Indigenous leaders who were, who were condemning what he did, instead of being able to say, you know, here's what we were supposed to do and, and think about and, and really give, give some thought to. So I think it took away from that. Will it be something down the road or a future in Indigenous days where I think there'll be some panel or some reporter that'll say, do you remember the, the inaugural holiday uh, or the uh, inaugural Indigenous Day that was set when the Prime Minister went to Tofino? So there will always be some mention of it. But I just hope that, you know, he's apologized. Let's move on. But it was a huge bad mark for him and, and bad judgment that I think will cost him some, uh, some, some support for sure over the course of the next little bit. Bob, is, uh, is anybody going to remember in uh, two weeks or a month? Well, look, I don't think it was, uh, it, this is not the high mark, water mark for, for this prime minister. I think it was an error. Uh, I'm glad that he's spoken to some, uh, indigenous leaders and, uh, and apologized. And I think it was probably, uh, appropriate to do so. I think, um, he thought by doing an event the night before it was going to be fine and so on and so forth. And, and that was clearly an error. So, you know, I think that's that. I will say, uh, elements of the Canadian media have way, way, way overblown this, which is actually creating some sympathy for the guy. Uh, on people like the National Post and the Toronto Sun, 
cannot help themselves because he has beaten them in 2015, 2019, and 2021 when they've thrown everything at him but the uh, kitchen sink. Uh, commentators like John Ibbinson, who got it completely wrong when he wrote a book saying that Stephen Harper was going to be in every time and is now saying that Trudeau has to retire over this. It's another example of him getting completely wrong. So these guys are losing their minds because they have Trudeau derangement syndrome. Uh, they don't really care about uh, truth and reconciliation. They've never demonstrated a strong interest in Indigenous issues. But because Trudeau made a mistake in this area, all of a sudden now they're experts on the topic. Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations. John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. And Karen Stins, CEO at Variety Village. Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Ontario residents learned on Tuesday rapid COVID testing will be deployed at schools that are at high risk of COVID outbreaks. The announcement by Ontario's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Kieran Moore, is disappointing to some parents in schools that will not be included in the program, subject to what local medical officers of health decide. But according to medical authorities, including Dr. Peter Uni, blanket rapid testing could cause more harm than good. The scientific director of the province's COVID-19 science advisory table spoke with Libby about this following Dr. Kieran's announcement. So first of all, we need to be aware of and we have 1.1 million uh, kids aged 5 to 11 in this province, roughly 1.1 million. If we wanted to make this completely equitable, then we would need to say, okay, we offer twice a week testing to everybody in the province. And uh, this would mean we would do between uh, mid of October and uh, and uh, Christmas, when hopefully our kids start to be fully vaccinated, we would do 22 million tests. So that's already from a, from a logistical point of view quite a nightmare because you need, we need to remember that this will also really have impact on schools per se. Now, these tests are actually quite good. You know, they have a specificity of 99.6%, meaning they don't get many false positives. But since this is 22 million tests that we would need to do, this would mean that roughly 90,000 tests would be positive despite the fact that uh, a child wouldn't have uh, COVID-19. And that's where, you know, all these considerations now come into play that we just need to focus ideally in the situation we're in where we're really well on the way. This all works out. It works out with the vaccination, with the public health measures, that we want to focus on those places, uh, those communities and those schools that need the uh, rapid testing most to make sure that we can early identify children in schools that struggle and communities that struggle um, who are infectious for others and that we basically can take them out, isolate them, have then uh, a PCR test confirming whether the kid is positive or not. But we don't do that according to the cookie cutter principle. That's the idea here. Okay, so is was this just a matter of, uh, you know, the grassroots getting ahead of uh, public policy and uh, it got a little out of hand? Well, 
I don't think so. No, we had a discussion now for uh, for several weeks also with uh, with Dr. Moore, with others. And you know, what became really clear is that uh, Delta is a different animal. I sound like a, a broken record, keep saying that. There are two aspects which are really important. One is Delta is associated with a higher viral load in the upper respiratory tract, meaning a rapid test has an easier game to, uh, to become positive if indeed there's an infection. And the other part is Delta results uh, in people getting one to two days inf- uh, earlier inf- uh, infectious for others, meaning you basically you get infected yourself, you know, one to two days later you already infect others, and the rapid tests can, with their you know immediate turnaround, can help us to identify people who a have a high viral load, and b um, uh, immediately within 15 minutes or so, so that you can react and actually isolate people who are potentially infecting others. That's the advantage, and this has changed with Delta. We need to focus right now on the main um, um, aspect of these vaccines, that's preventing ICU admissions and deaths and hospital admission. And this likely continues to be uh, effective, the vaccines beyond six months after the second dose, perhaps seven, eight months. We will carefully monitor that, and depending on what we see, of course, we'll adapt to decision-making. And and when will we have a, a better sense of what the deal is with AstraZeneca, for instance? And now with AstraZeneca, sorry, I dodged this question because I simply forgot it. Um, we, we believe right now that this is probably quite comparable if it comes to, um, to um, serious disease, um, like the, uh, the ICE submissions and the deaths. And we are not quite sure, you know, how uh, to handle yet indeed just the potential third shot with, uh, with, with uh, Moderna or with Pfizer there. That's probably something which will be coming. But right now we're not in a desperate situation because our case numbers are really low, which is excellent. Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Linda in London phoned with an idea on how to keep politicians accountable. I think that, uh, in my opinion, we should start having a report card system for politicians, uh, provincially and federally uh, and municipally, um, and, and start having independent audits of all the promises that they make at the beginning and see how they're doing. Um, just like any other uh, process with an employer-employee relationship, um, I think that's important. And I, I think we, uh, we hear far too much rhetoric, far too much, you know, deceitful and lies and, and things like that that we don't want to listen to. We want the facts. Uh, we want to know what they've done so far, uh, what they have yet to do, and uh, if they're on the mark or not. And I think that's good for the politicians, and I think it's especially good for the taxpayers. Barry in North York phoned about repercussions that should be faced for all of the damage done in long-term care during the pandemic. 
first of all, the people that have violated terribly um, the uh, rules and uh, and put the long-term residents in terrible danger and at times um, death should be punished, especially one in Scarborough, because then that, that sets a precedent and it shows people you can't do this. Big business, you cannot do this and get away with it. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Brian in Toronto, who phoned about preparing Thanksgiving dinner when Chef Rose Reisman was among our guests. This year, because we're still, some of us are still very limiting our gatherings, instead of necessarily cooking an entire bird, which is a lot of food, is you can cook a piece. You can buy a turkey breast and a turkey right. leg. And then, you know, the, the cook time, the process, I'm going to have myself, my fiance, and maybe our kids, and that's it. And we're going to have six people to sort of cook a whole bird. And you can do the stuffing in a roasting pan. You can do your right. squash and your sweet potatoes. Okay. It saves a lot of time and effort. Right. Then you're not eating turkey for 10 days, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, if, and, and a half-eaten turkey sits in the fridge, takes up a lot of space. That's so true. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.